Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. So we have been looking at the Ten Commandments and... The one we're considering this morning really does help direct our attention to what we will be partaking of in a few moments. We're continuing our study, and we come to the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill, which is probably the one commandment that, it almost, that has almost universal agreement that that's a good commandment, that killing people is bad. You know, no one approves of the murder of the innocent, and it's often the one people go to justify themselves. You know, they may have done bad things, but at least I haven't killed anybody. While the first four commandments really instruct us on how to love God properly, love the only true God properly, which is spiritually, reverently, and regularly, the fifth commandment we considered last week, dealing with honor, is the bridge that brings us between loving God and loving our neighbor that we honor our parents, father and mother, that if honor is not learned at home, a person will neither honor and love his neighbor nor honor and love God properly. Now, we might assume there's really not much we can learn from the sixth commandment. But if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes this commandment and shifts from the external application to the internal heart attitude and the violation of that. So what I want us to consider this morning is the importance of of honoring life and seeing that from this commandment. In considering both the external and the internal application, we have to ask ourselves, do we honor life? Do we have a principled view of life and death based on the Word of God and God's perspective of human life? Do, Do we practically apply the image of God in humans to our our actions and our attitudes. And do we understand why Jesus Christ intensified this commandment? Really, do we have a biblical worldview of life and death? What I want us to see from this passage this morning is that because humans are made in the image of God, life is sacred and it is to be lived for the glory of God. And recognizing this aspect from this very brief command, one of the shortest of the commands. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 13 in Exodus chapter 20. It says, you shall not murder. And we understand the importance of this. The first thing that I want us to see from this passage, though, is that the the protection of human life does not restrict all death. Most of us are probably familiar with the, the, the King James translation of this, what I stated earlier, thou shalt not kill. And I intentionally did that at the beginning because that's how most of us have probably learned this, and yet that also has led to some confusion. By, by saying thou shalt not kill, does that mean no killing, animal life, of, of what about being a soldier and things like that? How, and, and sometimes we hear, well, how can you be against abortion but for capital punishment? And they point to this commandment. And understanding this, I did a quick scan of about 55 English translations. Forty of them translate it, you shall not murder, 
14 said, you shall not kill. One said, thou shalt not slay, with kill in parentheses. But when God wrote this commandment, he didn't do it in English. It came in Hebrew. And there were eight possible Hebrew words that could have been used. And the one that was used is very specialized. It refers to killing or taking innocent life. It really refers to murder. It's that illegal violence that would have brought this violence into the covenant community of Israel. So the translation, thou shalt not murder, or you shall not murder, is really helpful. Because this word was never used for killing animals. The first thing we have to understand is animal life is not equal to human life. And while we, this should be obvious, frankly, in our culture, it is not. There are some that would attempt to put animal life on the same level as human life. Michael W. Fox, who was the vice president of the Inhumane Society, said this, the life of an ant and the life of my child should be granted equal consideration. I don't think that brought much comfort to his child. <laughs> you know, as I, I read that, I think that, that child probably had trust issues for the last, rest of their life. That animals and insects are made by God, but not in the image of God, like humans are. Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, said, six million Jews died in the concentration camps, but six billion broiler chickens will die this year in slaughterhouses. The very attempt to establish a moral equivalency between Jews and chickens is immoral. Every human is created in the image of God to bring glory to God. And chickens don't do that. Not in the same way. And we see this in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, verse, or in Genesis 9, verse 3, God told Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as I gave the green herbs. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Jesus, we, we read, For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Jesus himself, we know, ate fish and the Passover lamb. And so for somebody to say that it is wrong for Christians to eat meat is unbiblical. Now, if they want to make that decision for dietary re reasons, for their own health, that's fine. But to try to impose that on others and try to bring animal life to equal with human life is really ungodly. And it does not honor life. We need to also understand that just war is not prohibited by this commandment. Some people think that Christians are supposed to be pacifists. And, and that it is, it is wrong to, to fight. Well, that in itself does not actually honor life. God commanded Israel to drive out and, or destroy the pagan nations that were in the promised land. That, that God's word is not self-contradictory. And we talked about that last Sunday evening. And by the way, one of the reasons for the destruction of those nations was that they had polluted the land with the shedding of innocent blood. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, we, we read that, that David is asking God and then told David, saying, look, the, the Philistines are, are fighting against Kiliath, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go, shall I attack, shall I strike these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go, attack the Philistines. 
and save Kilio. Well, there is such a thing as a just war. When it's raised with when it's waged with the right intent for by a legitimate authority for a worthy cause, that is a just war. Both Abraham and David went to war to recover stolen people and property. And the justification here is similar to to why we we see that Christians can serve in the military. In fact, that is honoring life to protect the innocent, which then leads us to the third one, lethal force by law enforcement is proper. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus is marveling at the great faith of a centurion. A centurion was a soldier who was tasked with keeping the peace in Israel and had a duty in that area. And and Jesus marveled at his faith, but didn't tell him he was supposed to be a conscientious objector. And we see in Romans chapter 13 that rulers are not to be a terror to good works, but to evil. And so you should not have to be afraid of authority if you're doing good. You'll have praise of the same. And so we understand that there's an aspect of lethal force that sometimes takes place. We have law enforcement people in our congregation. We need to understand, fourthly, that capital punishment is authorized by God. You know, there are many major denominations and religious denominations that that believe this commandment, the sixth commandment, prohibits capital punishment. And yet that really understands the law and, 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 frankly, the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, do you realize that every sin was a capital offense? In the day you sin, you will die. Under the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, there were somewhere between 15 and 20 capital crimes, depending on how you group them. There was a death penalty that was supposed to be enacted for murder, for kidnapping, for rape, occult practices, offering human sacrifice, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, incest, bestiality, and several other sins. Those were capital crimes. In fact, in Numbers chapter 35, verse 31, it says, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not pollute the land where you are, for the blood defiles the land, is verse 33. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Capital punishment was necessary to purify the land. I remember being in, in, I think it was junior high or maybe around ninth grade, and a discussion of capital punishment came up in one of our classrooms And most of the class was opposed to it. There were a couple of us that said there's a a reason for it. And I had given the biblical answer for why capital punishment was justified and and used verses from the Old Testament in in Genesis, uh, again, chapter 9, where uh, Noah is told that that man is made in the image of God and the capital punishment for, for innocent life has to take place. And my teacher, I still remember her making the comment, she said, are, are all those verses in the Old Testament? Now, I suspect that her unstated implication was they don't apply today. But Romans 13, 4 says, for he is the, God's minister, going back to we're talking about the authorities, for good, if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath upon him who practices evil. 
And when we see this, we see to execute wrath. He does not bear the sword. The sword was an indication of power to take life. It wasn't for decoration. It wasn't for knighthood. They didn't have lethal injection. They had lethal incisions. And that's what the sword did. And so there is a biblical ground for capital punishment because humans are made in the image of God. And murdering, taking innocent life, the payment is the death of the one who does it. We also see that self-defense is biblical. You know, sometimes people again say, well, turn, turn the other cheek is what Jesus said. Yes, and that's speaking primarily of being insulted, not assaulted. Because it's legitimate to defend oneself. And we might think this is an easy answer in an open carry state, but we have to think biblically, not emotionally. But in Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 and 3, it says, if a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Now, if the sun has risen on him and there shall be guilt for his bloodshed, he should make full restitution. If, if he has nothing, then he should be sold for his theft. It's interesting to look at these verses in, easy, or in Exodus 22 because it's, there is an aspect of self-defense, but on the other hand, if his intentions can be seen, if the sun comes up and you realize this is not a life-threatening situation, there, there is not a fear of physical harm, it was a grab and run, personal property is not more important or more sacred than human life. And that's really what we see. We also see it in, in Numbers chapter 35 when it speaks of the cities of refuge that are dealing with involuntary manslaughter. The motives are to be assessed. If a weapon's involved, if there's malice expressed, then it's not involuntary manslaughter. It's considered homicide. In Luke chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus tells his disciples, he said unto them, but now he who has money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Why would he need one? For defense. All of these really speak of the importance of innocent life and honoring life. And so we have to understand properly what this passage is saying. Now, what does it prohibit? The second thing I want us to see is the protection of human life prohibits the physical taking of innocent life. That's what this command is stating. Thou shalt not murder. The command forbids the taking of innocent life, the, the legally innocent. So it prohibits homicide. And the Bible has many examples of this, of the violation. In fact, the first person born... Cain was a murderer. And the second person born was his victim, his brother Abel. One little boy who had been told that story made the comment, maybe if they had each had their own rooms, Cain wouldn't have killed his brother. <laughs> I think he had his own selfish ambition there. Do you know the issue was a heart problem, not a housing problem? And understanding that a few verses later in that very same chapter, in Genesis chapter 23, we find a man named Lamech. It's almost like he's performing, performing the first gangster rap. As he says, Ada and Zillah hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. He's actually boasting in killing somebody in self-defense. 
You know, this command prohibits what David did to Uriah the Hittite and pushing him out where he would be killed in battle. In fact, in Numbers chapter 35, and again, this passage speaks of, in this passage, this section is dealing with the cities of refuge, but it says, it says in verse 16, but if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he strikes him with a stone in his hand by which he would, could die, and he does die, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die, and he, he does die, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. If, if the avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death when he meets him, and he shall put him to death. What is it telling us? If somebody has a weapon, it's not involuntary manslaughter. If somebody holds up a convenience store and try, with a gun and tries to say, well, I didn't mean to kill him. No, they're a murderer. They may not have planned on shooting that person, but they took the weapon that would bring them to that point. Murder is also what was done to Jesus Christ. They used false witnesses to bring charges that were inappropriate. In fact, also under the Old Testament law, if you testified falsely in a capital case, you were to die. And understanding that. So murder is one of these things. Abortion is another. Regardless of what our courts or culture may say, the unborn are considered by God to be human. Life begins at conception. And understanding this, in Exodus chapter 21, just across the page, a, a couple of verses, in verse 22 it says, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposed on him, and he shall pay the judges what the judges determine. But, verse 23, if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. Says there's a fight, and a woman ends up giving premature birth, but the baby's okay. There will be a penalty because of the danger, the situation that has arisen, but it's not death. But if harm follows, what does that mean? If the baby dies, it's life for life. It, and understanding that and recognizing just because abortion is legal in our country does not make it moral. Unfortunately, when the government does things like that, it, it fails to give a sacred view of marriage and it creates a lot of confusion and especially in times of distress for people who are, who are struggling and they end up making wrong choices. And that's why government's supposed to be a terror to those who do evil and help set a standard. I think there's serious culpability for those in positions of authority who promote what God condemns. You know, our, our society may be sophisticated and cultured, but it is no less pagan than the nations that God destroyed. They did child sacrifices, where in our culture it's often on the altar of convenience or unfettered immoral behavior. Now please understand where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And we're going to see that in a moment, that God's provision, even for those who shed innocent blood, that's why David cried out, for the mercy of God when he had committed murder. He knew the only one who could forgive him, and that's why he said, create in me a clean heart, O God, in his confession. I would say a third one is suicide. While there's no passage that speaks directly to this, the principle applies that, that suicide is self-murder. It's an assault on the image of God in a person. 
Because every one of us here is made in the image of God and for His glory. And unfortunately, with suicide, the perpetrator of the misdeed is also the subject of the crime. But Ezekiel 18.4 says, Behold, all the souls are mine. The soul of the Father and the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. And I do believe that a believer can reach such a low point that they, they want to and take their eyes off of God that they can get to the point where they want to end it all and take their own life. But the pain is left for those of us that are left behind. There are unanswered questions that will linger until we reach heaven. But it really is a selfish and presumptuous act to think that I can force myself into God's presence before He calls me. See, God doesn't give us the right to kill ourselves. He will give grace in those very difficult situations. And to assume that I can kill myself is to assume lordship over my life when if I'm truly saved, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and in your spirit, which are His. And so we need to have a biblical thinking in this area. I think a fourth one is euthanasia and mercy killing. I did not put that in the the outline that you have in your bulletins. But but I think we we have to think this way as well. Now, there is a legitimate distinction, moral distinction, between killing someone and allowing the terminally ill to die. There's a difference between prolonging life and prolonging the dying process. And we have to understand that because in this day with with all the medical technology, there are machines that can keep hearts beating and lungs breathing even though there's really not that life there. And for believers, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we don't have a responsibility to prolong the dying process artificially because the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. I tell people if if a person's unsaved, do everything you can to keep them here so you can give them the gospel. But for believers, there are times we say, you know what, I don't need these extra steps. It's just going to prolong the dying process. It's not really honoring life. And these are, these are challenges, and, and there's a lot that can be spoken of in here, and we've actually covered these things in ethics classes before, but we have to think biblically about life. And let me say, don't let Satan poke around in your forgiven past and cause you to become de- depressed or discouraged. Look to Jesus Christ. See, we, we see these as the outward manifestations But Jesus now turns this, and the third thing I want us to see is there's protection of human life that prohibits the heart of hostility. And we see this in the New Testament. You know, we might be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, at least I haven't killed anybody. But Jesus shifts it from the outward to the inward. And he goes to hateful thoughts. In fact, Jesus addresses murderous hearts in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. He deals with these hateful thoughts. In in Matthew 5, verse 21, it says, You have heard that it is said to those of old, You shall not murder. But whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, 
shall be in danger of hellfire. And Jesus is saying this, sin, this isn't just sin, uh, limited to the sinful actions. It goes to the sinful mindset because the mind of sin does not submit to the law of God. It's controlled by the impulses and fleshly impulses. And so we, we see the statement here that prohibits hateful thoughts, but it also prohibits hostile words. If you say to your brother Raka. That was Aramaic. It was the Aramaic word meaning empty head, fool. The Greek word is moros, or we get moron from that. So have you ever called somebody a moron? A fool? Stupid? I mean, do you drive around here? <laughs> do you drive on the 101? If you don't respond sometimes like that, please come talk to me. I need help. I'm driving home the other day by myself after studying for this message and there was a driver that, that I really, I, I felt like their driving capabilities and their mental capacity must have some problems. And, and I write out loud. Now in my defense, I, I use classic Bugs Bunny terminology. So instead of calling him a moron, I called him a maroon. So I like Bugs Bunny. And then I realized, it's like, do you understand that that's exactly what this command is saying the heart attitude shouldn't be? I'm like, now, now, I wasn't really angry. I was just annoyed. I was irritated. But I thought how easy it is to fall into that and, and to have the heart attitude. I thought, you know, I thought I was doing better in that area. My wife really helped me on this one when we had really young children, and she said, you know, pretty soon they're going to be repeating what you're saying. I thought, yeah, I probably better not give an out loud commentary on other people's driving. But I was by myself. You know, we can think we're really good with the Sixth Commandment until we start examining our hearts and thoughts. And, and while my comment was careless and it was really a statement of annoyance, I really wasn't angry, it was a minor thing, how often do hurtful words fly out of our hearts in anger? I hate you. I wish you had never been born. That's the heart of murder. I wish you were dead. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Do the words that come out of your mouth give life or are they death words? Do they hurt or do they heal? You know, what do you say to your spouse, your children, co-workers? Words can kill and wound. They kill the spirit. Cruel teasing leaves scars and gossip can destroy ministries. There have been ministries killed because of gossip. The hostile words. I, I would say as well the silent treatment. You know, this is saying, I will treat you like you don't exist. I won't say anything. I won't use hostile words. I'll just have a hostile attitude. I'll pretend like you weren't here, like you're dead. It's bloodless murder. You know, and there's no body to bury. We just disregard the body that is present. How is that not the spirit of contempt that is a violation of the heart issue that Jesus is addressing here? And how easy is that to happen? That there could even be people in this room that you want to avoid and would rather not talk to. 
You know, before you come to the Lord's table, you need to settle that. If there's something, you need to leave your gift. Confess that to the Lord and then make it right with them. The, the hateful thoughts, the hostile words, but we, we see it goes beyond that to the apathetic disregard. There is more than just to keeping the sixth commandment than just not assaulting somebody. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is answering a question about how do I demonstrate love to my neighbor, and, and he explains that, and then they say, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus uses a parable that's familiar to most of us about a man that was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he gets attacked by thieves and they leave him half dead is what the passage says at the side of the road and then there are two religious leaders that come by and they see him but they keep right on going without offering any assistance and finally a Samaritan who's no friend of the Jews comes along and provides assistance, helps the man physically, provides for him materially, and, and puts him in a position to help him, says, when I come back, if, I, if you need any more money, let me know. And then Jesus asked, who was the neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? And the person who had asked the question responds, he who showed mercy. And Jesus responded, go and do likewise. You know, the worst thing that happened to that man that day was not getting mugged. It was being rejected by religious people who were too busy to save his life. We need to be very careful that we don't just ignore legitimate needs that we can meet. In fact, it says in 1 John chapter 3, bringing these thoughts together, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So we're moving from murder to are we meeting needs? I saw a horrific illustration of this just the other day. You're probably aware of the fires that are taking place on the Hawaiian island of Maui. I saw a video of, of people who were driving through the smoke and flame trying to get to safety and, and really in fear. And, and they finally were at a point where they were seeing their way out. And one of the occupants in the car states on the video, we made it. We found a line in the road. And his next statement is, somebody's down right now. And he brings the camera over and shows this woman laying in the road. And while their language conveys shock and horror, their response is even more horrific. As they pass this lifeless body, and he says, we cannot do nothing for her. It's almost like subconsciously the man's double negative points out his lie. And they just keep driving. And you could see from the video that there was time, there was space to at least safely check and assist. And instead, they selfishly excused their failure to love their neighbors themselves, saying, we cannot do nothing for her. You know, sometimes it's easy to focus on the physical needs. But what about spiritual needs? Failure to show concern for spiritual, the spiritual well-being of others is a serious offense. Do we offer the water of the word to thirsty souls and starving people that need spiritual food? 
What about our children? We can get so active in doing other things that we ignore spending time in God's Word with other people, with our friends, to encourage them in God's Word. You know, as believers, we're, culti- we're called to cultivate care and compassion that are the opposite of the heart of murder. This commandment is not just a prohibition against cold-blooded murder. It's against cold-hearted disregard also. And we need to focus on the inward, not simply the outward. At least I didn't kill anybody. Yes, but am I callous to the needs of others? See, when we, when we dig down below the surface, we find out there's a lot more here. And I find it very convicting. And, and I, I, I was patting myself on the back recently when I was driving and didn't say something. And I was really pleased when I saw them turn, in, turn into the church. I thought, Phew, that was safe. close. <laughs> You know, we have to be careful that we're guarding the heart attitude. But understand that the only way we can do this is through the strength of Jesus Christ. The provision for eternal life is provided by Christ's violent death. That is our hope. This is the only key that opens that door. The only hope for those with murderous works and murderous minds and murderous words, mouths, is that Jesus Christ died, was murdered for us. See, God's holy response to the evil of sin was Jesus' death. Jesus was murdered. He was betrayed by a friend, condemned by false witnesses. Even the person in charge said, I don't find any fault in him, but for political expediency, I'll kill him. And he hung between two thieves who were insurrectionists who were probably also murderers themselves. He hung on that cross that would have probably held Barabbas, who was supposed to die. As Pilate said, I'll release Jesus or Barabbas. And they said, give us Barabbas. And Mark 15, 7 says that Barabbas was chained with his fellow rebel. They had committed murder in the rebellion. And so the murderous death of Jesus satisfied God's holy response to the evil of sin. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, verse 23 tells us that we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24 says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's saying that when God did not immediately judge the sins in the past, his righteousness was called into question. And that Jesus Christ's death was the justification for God showing mercy in the past because he paid that price. He was the propitiation. That means the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. God's holy response to sin took place because of Jesus Christ. And so we see then that Christ's sacrificial death provides the way of life for those who believe. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. 
Christ came to reveal the Father, to restore us to that place of fellowship with Him because we're made in the image of God to create, accomplish our created purpose, which is to live for His glory. Or as it says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. It's because we are humans, made in the image of God, bearing the image of God, that life is sacred and to be lived for the glory of God. So to kill someone else is to rob them of what God has in store for them. To take your own life is to cut short God's plan that you would live for His glory. And understand the importance of this. It's not just that we exist. It's that we invest for eternity. Your life investment is more important than your life existence. So are you living for the praise of God today? Because how are you investing your life this morning? Your life investment is what's going to matter. Are we living for the praise of His glory? We can if we've trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. But understand the price that was paid so that we can have this hope, that He is the only key.